Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast. It is great to be back with you again as we continue our sermon series uh, about Methodism, what it means to be a Methodism, and this series is called Means of Grace. And uh, so before I get into that today, let me read the passage that we'll be focusing on today. This comes from the book of Psalms, and it starts at the very beginning, Psalm 1. So let us hear these words together. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like the trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither, and all that they do they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God's uh, blessing be on the reading, hearing, and living out of this word. So we are in the middle right now uh, in this in our household of uh, maybe buying a car or leasing a car. Uh, the Honda Odyssey that we've had now for 12 years has served us well, but it is um, seems like we're having more and more trips to the mechanic and making all kinds of weird noises, and it has about 190,000 miles on it, and so I think it might be time for us to, to, to move on. And the process is not necessarily one that I enjoy, but obviously I know it's a big decision to make and what kind of car. And so we've been going through all kinds of ways to make this decision. I have spent some time, of course, in what is considered by some to be the Bible of car buying, the Consumer Reports uh, Guide, and all of their recommendations. So I've been looking at that, but it's not only that. Uh, We ask other people, what do you drive? What do you like about it? Uh, we think about our own purchases. What have we done in the past? Do we like Honda? What about the one before that? We owned a Subaru for that. Do you remember if we liked Subaru or not? And then, of course, we think about what do we want in a car? How big should it be? What kind of mileage do we want to get? What, of course, safety? We're going to have our daughter is going to be getting her driver's license next week. Uh, and so these are all questions and ways for us to make this decision. And so as I've been thinking about that, and I realized, you know, one usually goes through great lengths, at least we do, when buying a car. Shouldn't we also be discerning when making bigger life decisions, uh, especially if we want God to be part of these kinds of decisions? Well, the reason I bring all of this up ties into what I mentioned earlier about this sermon series that we are participating in about what it means to be Methodist. And as I've noted in the last couple of podcasts, when you talk about what it means to be Methodist, you have to start uh, by talking about the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, uh, 18th century devout Englishmen who sought to revive the church. In their case, it was the Church of England. So we've been talking about the Wesleys. And today we want to talk about a way that John Wesley made decisions, or rather a way that John really tried to sense and discern how is God working in his own life and in the life of those that he was ministering to, and the whole country for that matter. And so uh, we are going to be talking today what is sometimes called the Wesley Quadrilateral. It's a little bit of a misnomer because Uh, Wesley didn't ever talk about a literal quadrilateral. Instead, it's a way of discerning how God is working in our world. 
And it builds on actually an Anglican theological tradition. So Anglican is also the Church of England, which is, as I noted, the faith tradition that Wesley came out of. For Anglicans, they believed in three ways for us to really uh, figure out and discern how God is working in the world. And that was scripture, tradition, and reason. And I'll explain what those are in a minute. Wesley added one more to it, and hence that's how this whole Wesleyan quadrilateral has been named, uh, or was named in the last century. Wesley added experience. So, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience are four ways that we think about how God is working in the world. So, before we get into that, though, let's take a look at the scripture today, and we actually can see maybe a little bit of the psalmist who's encouraging readers to think about multiple ways, think about broad ways that people can really try to to get a handle on uh, not just who God is, but um, how we are supposed to respond to God's uh, acting in the world. So, at the very beginning, of course, Psalm 1, when you're Psalm 1, you want to set a trend. It's an opening to Uh, You know, if you play sports and how important it is to get a good start, or if you go to a Broadway musical, have the opening number is so critical. So for the Psalms, Psalm 1 is making a statement, of course. And verse 1 opens, and one of the key themes, not only of this Psalm, but certainly throughout the whole of the Psalter, is making choices. Verse 1 says again, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. So, to be blessed or to be happy, obviously, is a pretty key theme throughout the, all of the Psalms. But individuals have a choice to make. What will you do? Will you follow the advice of the wicked? Will you follow the path that sinners tread? Will you sit in the seat of scoffers or not? The psalmist Uh, in this particular psalm, makes that pretty clear. What will make you happy? What are the things that will bring blessedness? And what are the things that will bring uh, death? What are the things that will lead you to perish? And it's pretty clear. And then in verse 2, it talks about what it is that one should do in order to be happy, to be blessed, to take the right uh, path, to make the right choice. The law of the Lord, it says in verse 2. Now, a biblical scholar named Clinton McCann, I think it was really helpful here, and he talks about the law of the Lord, Torah, really means instruction. That a happy person delights in God's instruction to always have it before them, to always be open to it. McCann, Dr. McCann, specifies that the law of the Lord, the instruction here, uh, and I'm quoting him, is not a particular corpus of stipulations, but more broadly to the whole sacred tradition of God's revelation. And he continues, what Psalm 1 commands, therefore, is a devotion that looks to tradition, to scripture, and to contemporary words and events as sources of God's revelation. So, as uh, Dr. McCann believes and points out here that when the psalmist is talking about the law of the Lord, it's not just what they would consider scripture, but it's much broader than that, that we are to be open to the many ways that God is speaking to us so that we might understand and get a sense of God's revelation. And that's then what we're talking about today with this notion of a, of a quadrilateral, a theological quadrilateral. And again, this is not uniquely Wesleyan. As I noted, he got it from other theological traditions. But I want to take a look at each of these four things 
as ways that were helpful for Wesley uh, and I think can still be helpful for us today. Now, I think for Wesley, I think most Wesleyan scholars would agree that Scripture was first and foremost. The, there's a United Methodist Dictionary, which uh, I didn't know until this week uh, in reading about that. And it notes pretty clearly, for United Methodists, Scripture is considered the primary source and standard for Christian doctrine. So I think many would uh, agree with that. Not everyone, but many would agree with that, that you start with the Bible. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that can the, the Scriptures can be really intimidating uh, and hard to read and may seem a little antiquated. Certainly at Urban Village, we've talked with folks about that. We've tried to give people uh, ways for them to read the scriptures in helpful ways. But because it can be intimidating, and there's lots of words in it, and parts of it can be troubling, uh, sometimes people will just go away from it and go to other ways to get a sense of God's revelation. But to do that, I think we miss out on so much, and that's the importance of scripture. One of my favorite stories about the scriptures comes from the book uh, Amazing Grace by Kathleen Norris, and I'm going to actually read from my own book, uh, Failing Boldly, because I quote from this book and uh, sharing this really wonderful story that Norris tells about the scriptures. And she notes that, uh, that, well, I should say in Amazing Grace, uh, Norris takes lots of different theological words and kind of breaks them down a little bit. So there is uh, one entry in this book called Bible, and the chapter is only four paragraphs long. But Norris describes one night she and her husband were visiting what she calls uh, an old-timer, tough, uh, or rather they came across an old-timer, a tough, self-made man in the classic American sense in a local steakhouse. This man, Norris calls him Arlo, was more talkative than normal, and he was sharing a story about his grandfather, who was deeply religious. His grandfather gave Arlo and his wife a Bible as a wedding present in white leather with their names and the date of their wedding set in gold lettering on the cover. Now, Arlo was not much of a religious man, so they put it away. His grandfather kept asking him how he liked the Bible that he'd given him, and Arlo was puzzled by this. Because his wife sent a thank you note. He thanked him in person, but his grandfather kept asking him, how do you like the Bible? Months later, Arlo finally got the Bible out to see what the big deal was. And he discovered that his grandfather had put a $20 bill in the front of every book, both Old Testament and New. So that was more than $1,300. And Arlo noted that was a lot of money in them days. It's a lot of money these days too. But I love this story because I think it... Uh, is a way for us to think about that there are treasures in the scriptures. I wish I could tell you there is literally a $20 bill before every chapter of the book. But there are treasures there, even if we don't realize it, if we would just begin to look through it and make our way, even at times when it's frustrating. So scripture, the beauty of scripture is there for us. And it's a primary way for us to get a sense of who God is, but certainly how God is working in our own lives. So scripture is the first thing for us and for Wesley. The second thing is tradition. Now, again, I'm going back to the United Methodist Dictionary that says tradition is experience and the witness of development and growth of the faith through the past centuries. And this is, this is key, I think, and in many nations and cultures. So often when we talk about tradition, uh, we think about our ancestors in the faith. But I think what happens often, probably too often, when we say tradition, we think about uh, writers, church leaders, theologians, 
throughout uh, our history, and those tend to be overwhelmingly white men. And so the problem with tradition, if we don't really take in the full tradition, that we can only look to white men uh, as those who have final say about who God is and what God is doing. But tradition, as the definition from the dictionary notes, has to also encompass many nations and cultures and contexts. So I was reading an interview this week with Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy and the director of the Equal uh, Justice Initiative. And he was telling about him growing up in the church. And in this interview, he said that when you were growing up, there would be, uh, they would make you play. He was a young musician. They would make you play during the testimonial services and people would come up and give their testimonies and they'd start singing. And Stevenson said he remembered these old people would come in and they would give these testimonies that were heartbreaking. Uh, But they would always end the testimonies by singing, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. And he said, when people started singing that, it just did something to the temperature in that space. And it made it joyful and triumphant, even in the face of hardship and pain. Now, some would talk about this as experience, this experience that Brian had. And I'll talk about experience in a moment. But I think it's also important to talk about that this is also tradition. It's not just uh, white men who are writing things in books centuries ago. Now, these are important. It's important to read these things. I mean, as I noted, after all, we're doing this sermon series about uh, a dead white guy. But it's also important to not only focus on those individuals, but to look at the breadth of the traditions of the church, like the black church experience, singing something like, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now, that that also, the traditions of those ancestors in the faith are important as we think about what did our grandfathers and grandmothers and our ancestors before them, how did they see the faith? How did they respond? That's not always going to be correct. Obviously, cultures change, but it's important for us to not just say, well, that's history, so it doesn't matter to us. Tradition's important. And that was a key component for, for Wesleyan for us today. So we've talked about scripture and tradition. The third one is reason. So this is, as the Methodist Dictionary says, reason is what the individual Christian brings to bear on the Christian faith, discerning and cogent thought. So in other words, what I like to say is when we come into worship, we don't turn off our brains. It's not just blindly following and just blindly uh, doing what what anyone else in church leadership says. We think about, think clearly and carefully about uh, the brains that God gives to us, how God works in science, too. Uh, I know many of you read about um, the suicide of Anthony Bourdain a few weeks ago, a heartbreaking thing that really impacted a lot of individuals. One of my favorite uh, writers these days uh, and followers uh, follows on Twitter is James Martin, who's a Catholic uh, priest and writer. And someone on Twitter had written something um, that I certainly very strongly disagree with that talked about uh, for someone who commits suicide or dies by suicide, that they are doomed uh, to eternity in hell. And so Martin uh, responded pretty strongly back to him. And I'm going to show this tweet Uh, in worship on Sunday, but let me read it to you too. And I think Martin does a really good job of looking at some of these components of what scripture is. And he wrote, if you're religious, you believe in a God of mercy who looks upon these people with infinite compassion. Suicide is usually the result of depression, which is an illness. 
And God does not condemn the ill. And here he quotes or cites John 9, 3, where Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. So in this tweet, he walks us through. He says, you believe in a God of mercy and you look with these individuals with compassion. And then he notes, suicide is usually the result of depression. So here, he's using reason. We know because... Uh, individuals in the psychotherapy field and uh, other medical professionals have talked about mental illness. And we know that uh, when someone is in depression, they sometimes often are not necessarily thinking in ways that we know them to think, and they may uh, follow through with these acts that we know the true true individual uh, that they would not do. And we've experienced that at our own church. It's It's an illness. It's an illness. And then Martin shifts to say that God does not condemn the ill. And he quotes the scripture. So here, Martin is talking about different things, certainly experience and scripture, but also reason. Because of what we know about mental illness, and we know what may or may not be going through a person's mind when they die by suicide, we know we must treat them with compassion. And this is, I think, an example of of reason, of Rather than just saying, well, the church has used to teach that those who died by suicide were doomed. But instead, because of what we know about what goes on in a person's mind when they are in depression, that we cannot, we cannot have that um, belief anymore. So it's a good example, I think, of using, of using reason, too, as a way to get a sense of who God is and how God is working in the world. So we have scripture, we have tradition, and we have reason. And then the final one is experience. And this is the thing that I think is perhaps uniquely Wesleyan. And it's also the one probably that, um, I don't know if controversial may be strong, but it's the one that engenders the most debate. Uh, Experience is the individual's understanding and appropriating of the faith in the light of his or her own life. I was uh, exchanging emails this week with Jonathan Dean, who used to be a part of Urban Village. He's the husband of Trey Hall, the co-founder of Urban Village. And Jonathan is a Wesleyan scholar. And I had a question about experience. And he wrote back such a helpful uh, response to how Wesley thought about uh, uh, experience. And of course, Jonathan noted that we must be careful with experience. It's easy for any of us to kind of feel something in our life and it feels good. And so we think, well, if I feel it, if I, if I experience it, then therefore it must be true. And we take away all the other things that help us discern who God is and how God is working. We eschew uh, scripture or tradition or reason, and we just solely go by what we feel. So we have to be careful about how we use experience and also careful about only uh, going by our own experience and we ignore the experiences of others But experience can be helpful. And as one example, Jonathan talked about going back to John Wesley and his own experience of seeing women in ministry. And Jonathan said that that Wesley saw women with gifts to preach. And over time, Wesley came to the view that if they had gifts to preach, the gifts must be from God and should be used and encouraged. Now, if you're going to look at scripture, of course, this goes against what some scripture says. You may know of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. It says, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. The scripture says, I permit uh, no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. So here we have an example. This is what scripture clearly says. And yet Wesley saw women with particular gifts preaching. 
And so Wesley didn't know what to do with that. And so because he saw clearly these women have gifts and his own discernment believed that this is a thing that 1 Timothy was written in a particular time and place, and that is not something that will span the centuries. And so Wesley did his own discernment in coming to that conclusion. It's the same way for us in the church. The United Methodist Church finally in 1956 allowed for full women ordination, full clergy rights. And in my own life too, the experience that I've had uh, with uh, with women has been transformative. I sometimes talk about a woman named Amy who had authority over me. I took a class in seminary called Clinical Pastoral Education, and it was a time of real discernment for me and not really knowing uh, what I was going to do with my life. Amy was really helpful for me at that time. So not only was did a woman have authority, she was my supervisor in this class and asked really good questions for my own discernment, but Amy was also gay. And so... Uh, of course, we've talked about all the, that, or I should say, the handful of scriptures that uh, seemingly speak out against uh, uh, same-gender relationships. But my experience with Amy, in addition to other ways of me discerning and my own experience of women and LGBT folks, made me realize that there are gifts here. There are gifts that need to be shared with the world. And this is important for us. It's always a key component too, as we as a denomination, the United Methodist Church will have important decisions to make over the next few months about where are we going as a denomination, particularly around this issue. And experience will be one of the ways that people will talk about, I've seen the gifts of openly gay individuals and how they go into the ministry. And others will push back against that and they'll say, scripture says this. So you can see the tension between these, the ways that we use the quadrilateral. For me, though, of course, experience can be, can be key in truly seeing and being thoughtful and prayerful about seeing how God is working in my own life and in the lives of others. So these are tools, I think, for us to be able to use in our own life, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, to, to use them all together, to not just use one or one that we may enjoy more than the others, but to try to use them to try to use them as a complete toolkit. You know, we make decisions all kinds of ways in our lives. Maybe at one time in your life you used a magic eight ball or you flipped a coin or something like that. But when it comes to discerning, and these are important times for us to really discern how God and what God is doing in our life, it's important for us to be thoughtful, to be careful, to be patient, to be loving, and getting a sense of, of how God uh, wants us to move forward and what kind of decisions that we should make. It's certainly a lot more important than a car that we might buy. And also, we can entrust and believe that the different ways that we think about how God is working, that God is with us, that God is with us in Scripture, uh, that God is with us in the ways that others have been with us throughout our lives and in how God is with us today, too. And that's something that we can count on, that we can believe and entrust. And that, hopefully, is the thing that we can draw comfort from uh, in any decision that we make. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, I will be uh, out next week. And so I encourage you, though, to... Uh, go to our church uh, Podbean page, and you can hear, still hear sermons from others. Um, 
my latest uh, Failing Boldly podcast. My other podcast finally came out with an episode uh, just uh, this last Wednesday. So you can go to my Failing Boldly uh, Podbean page or my website, christiancoon.com, and you can reach out to me there uh, and hear my other podcast too. Also, I'm going to be uh, coming out with a brand new uh, email. Some of you know that I send out an email with blog posts, and I will be... uh, creating a, a little bit of a longer of an email that includes a blog post, but it also includes the latest podcast and a few other little things too. So uh, if you would like to subscribe to that, you can just let me know and reach out to me at Christian at urbanvillagechurch.org. So uh, until two weeks, friends, may the peace of Christ be with you.